Welcome to MLOps Live, a podcast by Neptune AI. We host in-depth discussions where machine learning practitioners answer questions from other practitioners about one subject related to production machine learning and MLOps. Tune in to get real-life stories, dirty hacks, and pragmatic workarounds from ML people in the trenches. Hello, everyone, and welcome to MLOps Live. I'm Sabine, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen. Hi, everyone. Our topic today is going to be doing MLOps for clinical research studies. And our guests today are Silas Bempong and Abhijit Ramesh. Welcome, guys. Hi, everyone. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. Hey, so Silas is a machine learning engineer at Theta Tech AI, but you have a background in data science, engineering, and also a bit of healthcare, right? Yep. And uh, Abhijit, you are a machine learning research engineer, also at Theta Tech AI, and you have a background in AI research as well as deep learning, right? Yeah, that's right. Awesome. We'll get into the questions very soon. But first, I'd like to know just a little bit about what you guys do at Theta Tech AI and how does MLOps add value to what the company is doing? At Theratech, we essentially do clinical research, so building AI applications for doctors and clinicians and researchers in the field of medicines to use, so kind of like access systems. And we also, for small businesses, we build machine learning systems, which would be deployed in their hardware for detecting diseases like a peripheral arterial disease and so on. So the kind of the value that MLOps add there is most of the work uh, we do is kind of in production, uh, like 80% in production, I would say, where we want to squeeze out the best parameters from the best possible models. So we have the whole automation system where we kind of try to push all these models with different hyperparameter tuning. So it's essential for us to visualize how these experiments are doing. So that's kind of the value that MLOps add and for identifying which are the best models and see how they're performing in the real world. And I assume these models are like a big part of what the company like does. It's an important part. Yeah, it is an important part. And also we focus on making it like very much realistic, like uh, making sure that these models are representative of the real world data set to be specific. So Exactly. All right. So a bit of housekeeping before we get into the questions from the community. This is a fully interactive Q&A. So it means if you're here in Zoom, you can raise your hand. We'll unmute you. You can go ahead and ask your question. If you'd rather we pick it up, you can type your question in chat. And if you want to be anonymous, you can also just send us a direct message. So we'll pick it up at a suitable time. All right. So to warm up, Silas and Abhijit here a bit. We have this one minute warm up question. But since there's two of you guys, we're going to give you two minutes total. How would you explain the potential you think ML has for democratizing healthcare? Passing the mic to you. Yeah, sure. In terms of democratizing healthcare, I feel like you have multiple use cases where machine learning and deep learning like helps in that regard, especially in the areas that have to do with, especially in remote areas where access to top notch. Health professionals isn't exactly accessible to them. An example is I live in Ghana, and in Ghana, we have raw areas where, for instance, if someone wants to have an eye problem and needs to meet a glaucoma specialist, given that in our part of the world, you wouldn't have like that many specialists that would probably 
attend to say 10,000 people and yet you're more or less like talk about like an exponential in the tens of millions. AI helps in more or less like reducing the number of specialists we need and also helps like remote areas get access to healthcare professionals. But that exactly does very mean that you need a health professional to attend to them. An example is, for instance, if like you need an eye checkup and the health specialist only comes in probably like once every three months, you probably have to wait that long to get access to it. But with an AI integrated system, you could pretty much like go through that system and then you pretty much get your results instantly, damn quick. So that's one huge part where AI really helps in democratizing healthcare. Yeah, no argument there. Abhijit, anything to add or we're good? No, so essentially the way I see kind of see like the whole AI playing in healthcare is like, it's pretty much like compression. So a doctor can probably take a look at like like thousands of data points in his whole life. And they're pretty much learning from those data and making their own decisions, what kind of disease we have and so on. And imagine being able to kind of give this tool that can take a look at any amount of data that you can give it. And it kind of compresses it down to like latent spaces from which we could do like similarity searches and so on. And then equipping doctors with these tools is kind of like a nitrous boost for them. So it's like, it's much easier for them to make decisions on uh, using this tool that has seen so much data points and that they can have like similar cases clustering together very fast. Like they could have this tool that could show them, okay, so many patient tumors were cancerous or so many were non-cancerous and they could easily make their decisions. So being able to give that to a doctor kind of saves a lot of their time and they could look after patients more than focusing and looking at that one particular case for a very long time. So that would kind of increase the ability, like increase the ability for the doctors and thereby allowing more doctors to be trained faster and hence more patients to be treated. And that kind of means for me, like the true meaning of democratizing AI for healthcare. Mm, Awesome. All right, I think we're ready to dive deeper into. Just uh, we also have our founder here. Dr. Rob is also here with us. Hello. Nice to be here. I'm uh, Dr. Robert Toth. I have, uh, I'm founder of Theta Tech, got my PhD in biomedical engineering and been doing medical AI since 2006, I would say. So happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Welcome. Good to have you on board then. Price guest. <laughs> All right. I think we are ready to jump right into the community questions with Stephen. Right. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I love the use cases, by the way, as, as well as what Theta Tech AI is doing. So probably going to be overly enthusiastic about some of the questions I ask here. Yeah, let's jump right into it. And I would want us to start off with perhaps the production use case you've worked on at Theta Tech AI. And we'll just sort of use that to understand the MLOps workflow for how you do MLOps in Theta Tech AI. So the production use case, I think previously we also talked with your engineering team was when we developed uh, develop this PDA detection of peripheral arterial disease. We wanted to do a hyperparameter search. Initially, we were using like Excel sheets to kind of track how our experiments were going, but that did not scale. Like given that we were training at in Amazon for like 15 servers doing this hyperparameter search at a time. We started using Neptune to do the uh, basically metadata tracking for logging things like the grad cams and so on. And it kind of became much easier for us as well as the clients. So we have this shared dashboard across all of us. 
uh, like the three of us here, as well as the clients where we could say, okay, this week we are doing this experiment, see how the models are doing. And we tell them, okay, so we noticed that these models are doing pretty good. They could just open up a dashboard and see all sort of information, how the loss graphs are looking at, how the grad camps are looking, what the models are seeing. Does this actually translate into what the doctors are looking at on the signals itself and so on? So that was pretty much very valuable for us. And that was the one of the cases where we did end up picking some models from our experiments and putting them into production and seeing. And actually, those models were deployed in their hardware, which eventually started being used for detection of peripheral artery disease, let's say. Yeah, great point. And of course, when we talk about experimentation, it's just perhaps the midpoint of the workflow itself. And starting out with the data part, and I think we're going to be discussing a lot about data because usually when you talk about healthcare, it's really all about the data setup that care startups or individuals working in that space. But for a such one project, how did you sort of set up your data pipeline architecture? Was it just normal object store, blob storage, or there was some kind of, a, you did something different there? So I think one of the interesting things about the data that we've worked with is we had multiple different data points per patient. So right. we actually had to separate our data by patient, not by data point. Because if you have, let's say, the mm. same patient and they have five different scans and right. you add three of those scans to your training set and you think two of those scans are your leave one out or leave two out validation set, what happens is the model memorized data from that patient. And so it mm. does better than you think it does. And so one of the ways we set up our data was we set it up in databases, split up with the signal we got, the test patient we got, and the mm. scan date. But we also made sure that we had the patient ID associated with our data so that when we split up our data into different validation and training runs, we were able to split it by a patient, not by image or not by signal or not by scan or anything like that. And so that was one of the interesting things about the way we set ours up is making sure that all of our experiments we're splitting by patient, not by scan. I'm quite interested. And did that also happen, the same process and also happen like the production data after deployment? Yeah, they even, so we split our data up as well as we could on our side. And then the clients mm -hmm. that we built this for, they even had a separate leave some out test set that was even separate from our leave some out test set. Right. Just has another sanity check. So everyone was making sure that the AI didn't see a subset of the patients because when you set up your our MLOps pipeline, we have to make sure it's generalizing. So you don't want to in any way let the AI get a hint at what some information is about a patient. And so the clients set up their data set to only give us 80% of the data, for example. And then they, when they ran it in the clinic, in the hospitals, they told us how it was doing on truly unknown data sets. Right. We're going to be digging deeper into some of these workflows, but I'm also curious to look at the deployment side. Of course, you did mention that this was some form of edge deployment, if I'm not mistaken, or deploying on an on-premise server. What's your deployment workflow like? Is it just a manual process or there's some form of maybe CICD workflow involved or it's just very casual deployment style? Yeah, It was, we didn't have a continuous deployment setup, but we did have a process where we basically went through all the up to Neptune systems and checked mm, which one right. did the best. And then we kind of gave the clients, the ones, the models that were doing the best, and then they had right. a continuous deployment pipeline in their Azure cloud. All right, that makes sense. That makes sense. The management is done by the client, right? Or you still do the management on your side? Like it's managing the sort of models 
in production? Or they're doing a lot of the management of production on their side, mm-hmm. so right. we're not quite there yet. Right, that works. That works. All right, so let's jump right into maybe your decision process. How do you decide what tools to use or what processes to take for your MLOP stack itself? Silas, you want to jump in? Yeah, I think in terms of the decision process, what is the easiest way we could we can get to production? I think that's the models, like the models of Randy. So in terms of like our tool set, how how little code can we write to make sure like we get like this process function without having to write a lot of boilerplate code. So in relation to most of the projects we run, especially with the one we were the case getting on, the stack we used was fast AI and then PyTorch. Now the flexibility that comes with, especially with Neptune as well, that there's a lot of integration in terms of models you could pick, in terms of even to the extent where we could also do things like Optina integration and then have an Optina dashboard integrated into our Neptune dashboard without us spinning, us, uh, spinning up a server just to maintain that. We actually had that where we had to always maintain the Optina dashboard until we realized later that, oh, Neptune already has like an integration with Optina that works pretty well with um, FastAI as well. Let's boil up please code needed to more or less like keep this up and running. Because one of the problems we experienced with the Optina dashboard was you couldn't have like multiple users, say like outside the three of us, you probably have like amongst the clients, you probably have two, three more people viewed at the same time. I was struggling in terms of like the front end to render like basic graph plots just for six users. Whereas like with the integration to set accounts with FastAI, iPad, PyTorch, and Optina, pretty much have that set pretty much integrated in Neptune without like having to like write the low code. I think one thing we did was to more or less like rewrite the backend, but that didn't really work out well because we needed like multiple users to use it. But yeah, ease of use and then quicker the run rate production is what usually influences to set. And also like in terms of cloud, everything runs on AWS. So that's pretty much the thought process we used to set up. Uh, picking up our two sets. Right. I love the method here of choosing that. And if that helps you write, write as little code as possible. All right, let's jump right into some of the questions that were dropped by members of the community. And uh, they're quite interesting ones here, in fact. And the first question here, this person asked, what are the common types of models you leverage for clinical research today? So uh, they're not really like a common model because depending on the problem, we generally right. uh, change. But something that recently we have been using a lot is self-supervised learning methods from Facebook, like SimSime or SimCLR, self-supervised models. So the use of this is for us is kind of, we could potentially have like a lot of billions of actually unlabeled data, but they all have a very good structure, like which you could just look at it visually and see that it would cluster together. So we have been using this kind of data sets a lot to kind of cluster similar looking, let's say, signals or similar looking tumors together without using any sorts of data. So that was something that we have been looking at a lot. And most of them have like a ResNet 18 or ResNet 50 backbone. So yeah, that would be my answer to say like, what are the common models that you use? Right. Great point. So let's jump right into the next one. And this was asked, how often do you use zero-shot or few-shot learning in your projects? Because, of course, I assume that with medical data, there are going to be points where you are data-constrained. So I, I believe these methods somehow might come into the picture or not. We don't really use zero-shot 
stuff like that because we have a lot of data even if it's not labeled. Mm, So we'll typically work on unsupervised learning methods instead of other techniques when we have a lot of data, but we don't have a lot of labels. So we do like to run longer training jobs instead of doing stuff like that. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for sharing that. And what are some of the most recent cutting-edge research or studies that are working and you're shipping to production? Do you have any you want to share? We have a lot that we've used yet Neptune peripheral artery disease, but a lot of that is still going through FDA approval. So we can't really talk too much about it, but a lot of it <laughs> yeah. has to do with yeah. seeing if enough blood flow is hitting your toe from your heart. So seeing if your heart is strong enough to have your enough blood to hit your toe and your extremities. Well, that, that will really be interesting. Where can people sort of learn that particular use case once it comes up? Learn about that particular use case once it comes up. There's a good Wikipedia article on plethmisography. P-L-E-T-H is the abbreviation for it. So plethmisography right. is a technique where you shine a light through the skin and see how much blood is underneath the skin to see if you have peripheral artery disease or not. We've also done a lot of work on like small lung nodules that might turn tumorous. And we analyze lung CT data for that sort of data set. Right. And I think one pattern I'm seeing for most of these use cases is that most of them are sort of edge deployment, right? And are there times where you favor maybe deploying on a cloud endpoint and then running predictions through a cloud endpoint? Or why wouldn't you want to favor such deployment? We prefer cloud because it's easier to build AI that you don't have to worry about edge issues. But a lot of Mm. our clients have physical hardware devices and they don't always have internet connections. So they kind of require some Mm. edge deployment. So sometimes what we'll do is we'll use a simplified model for edge deployment and then a more advanced one in the cloud. Like we can use like mobile net for edge deployment and then a full-fledged ResNet 50 in the cloud. So if it's internet connected, they can use the cloud version of it. Otherwise, they can use the edge version of it. Right. And I'm curious, do your projects leverage sort of federated learning or? Not enough. It should. Not enough. (laughs) (laughs) It should, but it doesn't enough. Okay. All right. That's fine. That's fine. So let's jump right into the next question. And this person asked, how do you deal with use cases where the data is severely limited or that's just the nature of that particular healthcare sector? You can't get enough data. Yeah, we had this one project, like I said, where we used the same backbone, but one case where we had like millions of data points and one where we had like, I don't know, 400, 500. But ideally, the ideal solution is just to get more data. That's it. Like deep learning needs data. We just need to accept the fact. But we did try to push the model a lot, like these self-supervised algorithms. And we kind of got to a very good place. Then we started doing augmentations. So that kind of helped. So with the lesser amount of data, try to do as much realistic augmentations as possible. Like visually look at how the augmentations are doing and see if that makes sense to be augmented that way. And then we kind of did the augmentations and we noticed really good, I mean, really good results. So I would say number one, as much as possible, try to get more data. And number, the second thing to do would be to try augmentations. That's kind of how we dealt with it in the past. And Silas, you had something to do. Yeah, you pretty much was put on that. Given that, like, and this doesn't only apply to like healthcare, but other projects as well, where you probably have like limited data. In this day and age, like, there are so many tool sets that enable you to more or less like generate uh, data by yourself with um, lots of generator like 
query like language models, also with um, generative ads as well, where you could models like pass through a print and then generate something and also incorporating things like augmentations. And the added value of this is that you're not only getting more data, but you're also getting variety, like you're introducing variety to your data set that exposes the model to different conditions under which you probably need an answer from the model. So you more or less like help with improving the model by not limiting it to a specific scope of data, but then broaden the horizon of data it sees so I can get like very good performance on even data set it hasn't seen. And one thing to add too is we've had a lot of success using transformers for pre-training. So when we, like I was just said, if we have thousands or millions of unlabeled data, and then let's say only a couple hundred of actual patient data, which is often the case in the medical field, transformers are great for this. So what they do is you basically, on your unlabeled data, they black out or zero out a section of the signal, and then the transformer tries to guess and fill in the gaps. So it's a lot of like what you see in new AI art generative in painting and stuff where it tries to fill in or crop someone out and fill in the empty pixels. You can do that with a lot of medical signals. So basically you have the transformer learn how to fill in the gaps with the signal. And then what you could do is you could freeze the layers of that transformer model and then apply that to your only a few hundred data set. So it basically learned what the signal or image looks like ahead of time by learning how to fill in the gaps with its attention. And then you basically freeze most of those layers once it learns something, and then you fine-tune that on your smaller data set. So pre-training on a huge amount of data with transformers is very useful. And then just, like I said, freeze the layers and then fine-tune it on a smaller data set where you do have the clinical labels. That's another technique we found good success in. Great, great. And when we talk about, I mean, generative AI seems to be like the elephant in the room now for any tech podcast out there these days that I think it'll be quite interesting to sort of dig into that a bit more. And you've spoken about this, just using transformer models in a pre-training stage. But I'm thinking, what other potential do you see for generative AI models? Maybe like it could even be foundation models or say stable diffusion models or things like that for in the healthcare sector that really help with this problem of data and as well as modeling. I think it can increase the data set size. It's like augmentation is when you morph and transform your current data, but narrative models can generate new data that looks completely reasonable. And I think that one of the biggest issues in healthcare is the data set, the number of labeled data sets. So you probably only have a couple hundred patients during a clinical trial where you have labeled data. Generative models can basically be used as a pre-augmentation step where you can just generate reasonable looking CT images of tumors with reasonable labels associated with those. So you just need one generative model and then you can in hugely increase your data set size with pseudo data. It's not real data because it's completely made up. It's generative. But if it can make like just the way generative AI art can make reasonable looking paintings, if it can make reasonable looking CT scans or MRI scans of a tumor, that's more data that you could use for another AI to actually train a better and better classifier or regressor or whatever it is you're trying to train your model for. So I think increasing data set size for training data for a second AI is an, is an untapped use case in medicine that's going to be really important. And I think when people look at that particular use case, they would usually say something like, well, okay, what about the quality of the data? How do you tackle that whenever that happens? You generate new data sets and then you... We want to ensure that quality is really good for that project and not just some um, random generation somehow. I think with that, it's more or less like a black box in the sense that, especially if you're dealing with a small data set where like you want to probably like manually inspect 
each and every one of them. It's really easy to say, given a certain say, set of parameters, generates this. But in the tens of thousands, that's where you should probably be like very, very specific on maybe say the conflict that you pass in. And the example that we are using here is more or less like augmentations. So we currently have a situation where we are applying augmentations where we are more or less experimental with different magnitude and different augmentation parameters. And then with our experiment, experimentations, that we, we tend to like see a bit of consistency in terms of like, should we add more noise or should we reduce the rotation of this image and by how much magnitude gets in a bit of consistency in that you can pretty much apply that to millions of images. So you want us like should have a small sample set where like you have a control sample set where like you apply some sets of parameters that you tend to see consistent results. And once that is proven, you pretty much can replicate that on a huge data set with lower margin of error. Quite interesting. Do you also leverage any active learning techniques in the process or? We sometimes, I mean, give the our clients or the clinicians the harder ones to look at. Mm, okay. But we don't have an active learning pipeline where they actually look at the hardest cases and then we feed that back in as training data because a lot of our endpoints and labels, we actually need clinical data. We need the patient to go in and get like an echocardiogram or some physical test. So it's difficult to have an active learning pipeline where we're adding more training data on the fly from what the doctors label, because they're not just labeling it. They're not just giving us their opinion. We're looking for a clinical endpoint where you might need blood work or you might need a physical test that the patient has. So it's more like instead of like an on-the-fly active learning technique, it might be four months later when we got our clinical trial done and we got 100 new labels can feed that back in and retrain our system. So it's not really active learning in the traditional sense because you're waiting a huge lag of time before you're retraining your system. But it's kind of an active learning if you zoom out far enough and you realize every few months we get more labeled data from some of the trickiest cases and then we can feed that back into our system. But you have to zoom out really far to, to see that on a several month time scale. Feels like a great moment to interrupt the show and give you a 30-second pitch of Neptune AI. Okay, so we help with model metadata storage and management. That means you can log model metadata from anywhere in your pipeline and view results in the web app. You can organize and display it however you want, search, debug, and compare experiments, data sets, and models, save your production-ready models to a centralized registry, and collaborate on your projects across the org. Oh, and we integrate with pretty much any MLOps stack. Just plug us right in. For more, go to neptune.ai or check our docs. They're pretty good. I wrote them. Hope that was 30 seconds. Back to the show. All right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So before we jump right into the question in Zoom, we have one question from the community that really talks about the management of models in for edge cases. So maybe you've deployed the models on the edge. How do you manage the models in the sense that these models are up to date, as well as you can monitor like the metrics to ensure, of course, they are continuously providing value for whatever healthcare sector or stakeholder they are deployed to? Version control and unique identifiers to know which model's on the edge so that we know how it's doing. We try to be as meticulous as we can in our database with which model date, which model name, which model ID is currently deployed. We can freeze GitHub branches so we know what version of the code it was. So I don't think there's anything special about the way we do the management of which model is in production. It's more just keep track of it, keep the data, keep the logs, 
keep all information so that we have a clear database of what model is being deployed at which date. And one of the interesting things about the edge deployment or just model management in general is we're constantly undergoing active R&D. So we've had a situation where our model accuracy starts to really dip. So what do you do in that situation? Like You just come up with another creative idea? Well, no, we looked at our Neptune logs, we looked at our dashboard, we looked at which model was on the edge, we reverted to the last model that was actually doing really well, and then we restarted our R&D from that last accurate model. So that's one of the benefits of keeping things organized as you go, is if you ever get into a rabbit hole where things are just, the accuracy is just dropping and you can't figure out why, you can always revert back to last month's model that you know was doing very well, and then just kind of restart the clock from there. Right, that's a good point. Thanks for sharing that. Okay, so we have a question in chat, and this person asks, can we use supervised, unsupervised and semi-supervised learning to improve the performance of generative AI models? As I mean, it's perhaps a particular to the healthcare industry, perhaps. Yeah, I think, I mean, the generative AI models out there on like stable diffusion and mid-journey have enough data sets that are mm-hmm. labeled where you don't really need it because generative AI is trained on image caption labels. So basically pairs of images and their associated captions, and then it tries to go from caption to image. But if you're just like starting a different project with a different data set, unsupervised learning, I think, could be hugely useful because you can basically pre-train it to learn what similar images or similar whatever signals look like. And as long as it clusters things very well with the unsupervised data, you basically just freeze the first few layers. And the first few layers of, let's say, an image AI is basically just learning simple edges and simple combinations of edges and simple textures. And so the unsupervised learning is really useful at making your AI model pre-learn just kind of what to look for. Like, what is an edge in this data set type? So like, you might have a contrast-enhanced MRI. And that's going to have very different edges than pictures of birds. So you don't really want to just be using one of these off-the-shelf models. It's self-supervised learning is really the right way to to do it because you basically try to train that self-supervised learning on a huge amount of unlabeled data to learn what similar-looking images look like and how they cluster to each other. And then you freeze layers. You freeze the first few layers that already learned something. And then you just kind of fine tune the other half of your model on the real data. So for generative AI, you can basically just use a whole bunch of, let's say you have images, but no captions. You basically pre-train your self-supervised learning on all the images that you have. Make sure that to a human, it's reasonable what it's coming up with in terms of the clusters. And then you basically can unfreeze the later layers and let it generate new images with your image caption pairs. But you can pre-train it on just your unsupervised, unlabeled, just pure images to learn basic things like edges, whatever, freeze the first few layers and then generate the rest. I think that would be a useful use case for that. All right, awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, we do actually have a question now in Zoom from the audience. So Akash wants to know, does a computer science student need to take university courses in biology or biotech? before contributing to clinical research. How much of a medicine background do you need before entering this field? What do you guys think? I think no. Like if you're with the right people and I just have a computer science background with very, I mean, same with Silas, I guess, with very less biology, you know, basic biology, whatever you learn in school. And then if you're with the right people, it would be easy for you to just look for what you should be looking for. And no, like this actually translates to whatever the doctors would be using because end users are doctors 
And that's kind of similar for all software, right? So whoever are your clients, you interact with them a lot. And then eventually you start doing this for a very long time and then you get to, you learn to look up by yourself. Does this make sense in the medical sense? So that's my opinion. Yeah, just that, like it's pretty much what the, like, I have a background in mechanical engineering. That's nothing to do with clinical research or anything. But then once you get into like the degree of things, you tend to like learn things on your own. And then like when you have experts around with you, like for instance, Dr. Harrow has a PhD in biomedical engineering. So he, had, he gives us a lot of insight into like the medical aspect of it. So, and as much as we probably just know to write the code and then know the AI, how the AI model will work, he provides the other perspective on, oh, this particular scan looks wrong. We should probably like fine tuners. And then as a result of fine tuning and then making mistakes and learning from that, that's when you tend to like, oh, okay, then these scans are actually like good scans. These are bad scans or these signals are bad quality or good quality. So it's something like you learn as you move along. Yeah, I agree with what the opposite and Silas said. I think as long as one person on the team has a bio background, I think you can't just have a pure team of computer science people doing medical device or medical AI research. So I think you need like at least one person who can advise on the medical. So like it's little things like when we look at a heart rate signal, to know that there's no dichrotic notch in the signal. You only know that you're supposed to look for that if you have some experience in the medical field. When you're looking at a lung CT scan, someone might say, like, we might build this model where we highlight these big tumors on it, but biomedical background tells me, well, okay, only 10% or whatever of the tumors are going to be this big. We need to train our model more on small tumors. But you wouldn't necessarily know that as just a computer science, because to a computer scientist, data is data. You don't care where it came from. Sometimes the biomedical can give you a little boost with the domain knowledge. But So like I might know that, okay, so blood vessels tend to go near tumors because tumors need food and blood provides nutrients to the tumors to grow. So you might want to actually create a feature that you feed into the AI that looks for blood vessels. You might only get those insights if you have that bio background. But again, you don't need the whole team to have that. You just need one person to know the bio side of things. Everyone else can pick things up on the fly as long as they're in constant communication with whomever on the team does have that bio background. But again, you can do this all with pure computer science techniques. And AI these days is so good that you don't really need the bio background, but it does help to know what you're looking for, to know subtle things like, oh, there's no dichrotic notch in this signal. It's a bad signal. Computer scientists might not know to look for that little specific shape, or you might know that, hey, you're training this on big tumors. That's not the real clinical use case. So there are some subtle benefits of that. But again, as long as someone you talk to has that, it's good enough. Right. So generally speaking, some learning on the job is possible. (laughs) Most learning on the job, I'd say, yeah. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Akash, very much for the question. We also have another question. Can generative AI models identify potential off-target effects and toxicity of drugs? If so, how complex should it be? AI models can. Generative models are basically creating new data. So generative models are like, create a new data set and try to trick a discriminator. If you think of a generator-discriminator pair, like GANs, one tries to generate fake data and it tries to trick the other one into thinking it's real data. So a lot of these generative models can be used for things like toxicity would be for anomaly detection. So if you have a generative model that can generate brand new whatever type of data you're looking for, 
you kind of the AI learns the distribution of data. And so if it tries to generate one that looks like your query and that model it generated is just so far outside of the norm, you could know that your query is a bit of an anomaly. So there's things like that that can help you determine if there's like toxicity or if a new drug is good or not. But a lot of the generative AI models can be like with the alpha folding. It can generate new combinations of ways to fold the proteins that are reasonable that we could try out in the lab. And so generative models can basically be used to try to potentially look and discover new drug, new combinations of chemicals that could create a new drug that's useful. If you're looking to analyze existing drugs for toxicity and side effects, it would be more for anomaly detection. Like as in, is this new drug's effect for this patient way, way outside the norm, like four standard deviations outside the norm. The AI could learn what that norm is, what the expected kind of result is. And if you try to generate one of your potentially toxic substances and it generates it so far outside the norm, you could just know this is an anomaly. That's what I would say. Awesome. Thank you for the question and for the answer. Great. Let's jump right into some of the pre-submitted questions. And this sort of person asks, how do you handle data privacy and security concerns when building your healthcare products and even doing biomedical research? I would say just read up a lot on what are the cloud platforms you're using, see if it's com- what are the compliance. For example, we have a system where we use both AWS and GCP. And that's because we know GCP has a DICOM store. We need to say, store this DICOM data somewhere, which is HIPAA compliant. And we have this whole system built around that, like a whole ecosystem where we store this data is always residing inside the CCP Tycon store itself. And we want it to be compliant, want it to be secure, and so on. And then we are pulling the data to AWS and using it for training. And another thing we do is try to air gap the system as much as possible. So put everything inside a VPC, cut it out from the public internet, wherever there is like this sensitive healthcare data air gap it as much as possible to minimum security. Like for example, if you take AWS, if you look at IAM roles, make sure all the services are using the least required role as possible rather than all resource access and so on. So that's kind of what we do. We make sure that everything is airtight, everything is air gapped, clients, and then just expose that one particular endpoint probably which your web application or your end applications APIs are going to talk to. And they're also at as much authorization as possible, like Google Auth, or to ensure that the user actually has like authorization into the system and they're not trying to call an API, with, like a public API, and get access to the data potentially. So yeah, we are very careful with those things. And we really read into the compliance and how things are handled in the web app and so on to ensure everything is airtight. And do I need to know any ethical frameworks or any ethical class frameworks to be able to then how to manage that properly? I mean, basic principle is prefer anonymized data. Okay. That's first and foremost. I mean, ethically, treat the data as if it was your mom's healthcare data. Like, you don't want it out there. Amazon has this good principle of, like Abhijit said, least privileged. So you want everything to have the minimum privilege possible to access. But honestly, it's just... Try to get all your data anonymized when you even get it from the first place. So if there's no patient identifying information in there in the start, it's 
ethically, you're in the clear a lot more than if you're getting the data from the doctors with patient information. You want to try to tell them, don't even give us this data or have them agree to say that this is anonymized data. If you're going to get data from a hospital's PAX server, figure out whatever that PAX server system is to anonymize the data first before it even hits the cloud. So a lot of the ethical principles are like, treat the data as if it was your own or as if it was a close family member's, and then try not to just get patient information from the, from the start. Because the AI model doesn't really need to know that. Yeah, and still on the problem of um, compliance and ethical frameworks in healthcare, how do you set up your team structure and contribution for projects? Do you typically work alongside domain experts across your entire workflow or, you know, you just require the expertise before the project, maybe during the requirements gathering stage and maybe after the project to ensure that results, metrics are met. We deal with domain experts, I would say, once a week for each client. So four times a month, we talk to a domain expert about where we are, where we're going, and if they have course corrections to provide us. The rest of the time, it's more just raw, nitty-gritty coding stuff. It's not so much domain expertise is needed. It's just more that... Once a week, course correction, four times a month, we talk to a domain expert, as in a radiologist or product developer or whomever is on the other side of it. Right. And I'm curious, when you talk to, when you deal with clients, do you usually have problems with like handing off models and maybe your products to clients or services to clients? Because I could imagine that production data for maybe a past client will require some level of access for maybe continual learning or continual access. Sorry, how do you manage such projects? PyTorch pickles. <laughs> I mean, the simplest <laughs> okay. way is like whatever, if you're using one of the standard systems out there like Keras or PyTorch, you basically hand them a pickled version of your final model with all the information associated with it. And you don't really let them tinker with the underlying neural network. You just give them the, the binarized version of it that is, hey, this is the final version of Epic 17 from November 17th uh, training. You basically pickle the data and give it to them and then give them all the information about it, but you don't let them get too under the hood with the neural network itself. Great point. And here's another good question. This person asked, do you integrate third-party healthcare APIs from cloud vendors like AWS and Google Cloud? Something like, for example, Google Cloud Healthcare Data Engine or things like that. As Abhijit said, we use Google Clouds has a DICOM server, D-I-C-O-M, and that's for radiology data. Okay. So we heavily use Google's healthcare data storage. Mm, okay. Amazon, we don't have any healthcare-specific APIs or services we use for them. It's more just all of their typical stuff, Lambda stuff like that. I guess the only thing we really use, we also heavily use the OHIF. O-H-I-F is an open source radiology viewer. It's not a third-party API or anything because we're building our own stuff, but it's a third-party open-source radiology viewer software that we work on. Awesome. So I presume this person is also interested in the, also works in the healthcare AI space and he asked, what are the most common concerns clients have when they want to build healthcare products with AI infused in them? Transparency. So they want to know how the AI is thinking. They want to know how did it come to that conclusion? Because even the best models, let's say it's 90% accuracy, accurate, 10% of the time it's wrong. And it's overconfident when it's wrong. The clients don't like not knowing how the AI came to a conclusion, especially the medical clients. That's been the biggest hurdle that I've had to deal with for the past 10, 15 years. They're like, well, we can might tell them, hey, this modern AI, these neural networks are so advanced, it's a black box, trust the data, or trust that the accuracies are what they are, and they don't like that. They want to know how it's thinking. 
And so a lot of what we've had to do is spend a lot of our development time on stuff like GradCam or attention maps or texture features that the AI is spitting out as it's learning. So they want to know where these techniques let you see, okay, under the hood, the AI tended to focus on this part of the CT image, or it tended to focus on this part of the signal, or it tended to focus on this part of the MRI uh, region. And so the doctors really like the transparency. Even if they don't use all of that data, they like to visually see where the AI was focused on so that they could do some sanity checking. If the tumor's here and the AI was focused on there, the doctor's going to want to know, like, hey, this is not what I learned in medical school. It's clearly looking at the wrong thing. Go back to your model. But they hate, hate, hate the black box. Like, here's a big red button. Give me an answer. They do not like that HAL 3000 style of trust the AI. So I think a lot of techniques in healthcare are about finding under the hood what the AI is doing to make its decisions. And that's going to be a huge concern as AI spreads into the healthcare industry. Mm. And let's talk about the concern a bit more. And I think when Abhishek was talking about handling data privacy or data security, he did mention something about the principles of least privilege, sort of, when handling that particular side. I'm just curious, what are the high-level security requirements you tend to define for any of your projects that would eventually make it to production? I think in terms of high-level security requirements, it's mostly like, it's the, I feel like that principle always applies to anything and everything. You look at wherever you're deploying to... Say if it's a regular web app, are you going to use HTTP or HTTPS? Which people need access to it? What kind of authentication service should you use? If a third-party person visits it, what kind of information should they be able to see? So we're kind of like segmenting that and having in mind that if I open, for instance, there are some applications where given, say, a specific user profile, there's only a certain amount of information you can view. And then once you log in with the right credentials, then you can then explore a lot more information to it. So that's how more or less like we've defined uh, the development and the production environments. For instance, we are currently working on a project where we need to display some certain information concerning a signal. Within our development environments, there are some specific things only we, the devs, would see where in the production environment, there are some specific things only the clients would see, given that we are still experimenting and testing out things. So it's more or less like identifying the use the various parties who would like to access the tool you're building and more or less like build specific profiles for them and have like specific accesses for those different profiles. Awesome. Abhijit, you want you wanted to add something or yeah, I think Silas was pinpoint on what I wanted to say. Like making sure that just be aware of who you're giving access to and that if they're authorized, it's very easy to make sure who is authorized nowadays, given that. Most people already have a Google account or something like that, which you can leverage the authorization for and check if that person exists in your database. So we have spent a lot of time to ensure that we are generating JWT tokens based off this Google account and if they're on the database and building like an authorizer, so as to speak. So yeah, it should be like very, just a very common sense to make sure who you're giving access to the sensitive data to. So like be very critical is what I would say. Great, great. Thanks for sharing that. Just to add to that, I think another thing to keep in mind is development workflow as well. You don't just like commit to get to your password. And because if anyone goes to like your Git log, someone could easily see, oh, in this specific Git history, I committed to access to like a Postgres database and just open and then anyone at all could, well, it's like 
copy that and then get access to us. So those are pretty much for now. So never get commit your passwords. And even if you are, make sure like you're putting it in a get ignore or like you're encrypting it of some sort. So these are outside like the user facing bit in terms of development workflows, which we also like incorporate in our development. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point, Silas. There's a recent study about how many public Git repositories have secret keys in them. And it's surprisingly high number where it may be it's not in the current version of the code, but in the history, people accidentally put their secret keys to Amazon or Google or Microsoft or whatever, and they accidentally committed it to GitHub. And it's just out there for everyone and they don't realize it. So I think you have to be cognizant of accidentally. The minute it's in the Git history, it's there forever. <laughs> the internet's written in ink, not pencil, as they say. So you got to be very careful about secret keys too. Awesome. So we have a series of questions from Prabith, but I think they all speak to one of the questions I also had as well, which is like protecting these models from adversarial attacks. Because again, the leakage is what you don't want. Yes, especially, of course, I think when you mentioned like anonymizing the data is one way to sort of prevent such scenario. But how do you typically prevent adversarial attacks of the models when in fact they're working so that they don't leak out sensitive data or things like that or results to, to hackers or attackers? Put everything behind an API is the easiest thing and lock that API down as much as you can. I mean, our, all of our models in production are behind APIs and those APIs are using Amazon's pipes. It's using Amazon's detection of like anomalies and we have like Amazon will, we have alerts, email alerts to know if there's a huge spike of traffic. You can get auto scaling turned on so that if there's a DDoS attack on your endpoint, it does distribute itself and scale well. So I think just basic things about like, if the model's properly locked down with IAM rules in Azure or Amazon or Google, you're usually fine with that. It's the APIs you have to worry about and just make those APIs so limited. Don't give information on the PyTorch version. Don't give information on the weights of the neural network. Just give the minimum information needed to make a decision and make sure that API is using a public, like don't build your own API hosting thing anymore. Like you just don't do that. It's not 20 years ago. Use Amazon's, use Google's, use some public service that already has a lot of this stuff built in. And then you don't have to worry so much about it as much as you used to. Okay, awesome. Now, I was just going to add by saying one other practice that Dr. Rob kind of enforces is try to use the latest version of all the libraries that you're using so that inherently, like the open source like, and libraries like NumPy, if there are any vulnerabilities, they are passed in the latest version. So we try to not pin it down. We might pin it down sometimes when we have dependencies issues, but otherwise we try to use the latest version so that most security vulnerabilities that could come up with these libraries don't affect our software. Yeah, that's API security 102, I would say. <laughs> Anyways, I think it would be unfair without discussing another elephant in the room, excuse my phone, which is bias detection or fairness and things like that. I'm just sort of curious, what are some of the pain points you see with adopting responsible AI modeling into your workflows? So I think when you talk about bias in medical AI models, the issue is often your training pool is not having patients representative of the general population. And I know that's kind of a general answer, but the truth is if you train your model and you trained only data from India, like Abhijit lives in or Ghana, as Silas lives in, or only in the specific state of America or a specific country, you're going to get bias seeped into your model because the people there 
maybe have similar genetics or similar environmental factors or similar nutrition or similar sunlight throughout the year, which can affect certain diseases. Like there's a thousand different factors where when you train your data, your patients have to be somewhat representative of your actual test set. And that's hard to do. It's hard to know the demographics of the training pool, but you want as much as possible to get variety in your data. There's some underrepresented things. So like if you have a specific subset of, let's say there's people in a country that doesn't often get included in training data. And even if you include a few of them, they might not be representative enough in your training pool to have their information really contribute to the AI model. So you have to worry about class and balance issues. So if you have like 90% of your training data is from Asian patients, that's going to be very different when you apply that to black patients or white patients or whatever other color. You know what I mean? Like it's, you want your data set to be representative of the general pool that you're going to be applying it to. And it's never going to be the case. You're always going to have some bias because you're always going to have slightly weighted based on which clinic or which hospital you got the data from. Even within a country, hospital one might have a very different, maybe hospital one is richer or poor or caters to richer or poorer people in that country. That's going to be a little bit of a bias in the data set because of nutrition maybe or socioeconomic issues. So there's always bias. So that's why you always want more and more variety of data that you're training your model with. Yeah, that's a good point. I would just perhaps, we've practically run out of time, but I would just love us to sort of summarize all the points we've had so far and I'm just sort of curious, what are your expectations for production ML in healthcare in the future? And what would you like to see? Maybe we go three guests and cool. <laughs> I would like to see every hospital connected to the cloud. Too many hospitals only allow on-premise stuff. So I think for production, we need, especially the rural hospitals, as I was talked about, to be cloud connected. They need to be more comfortable with using AI models in the cloud for things to really take off. I would, because... It's easier to scale around the world if everyone's connected to the cloud. If you have to physically go on-premise and install something in every hospital, every clinical center, that's an impediment to widespread adoption of AI. And a lot of hospitals are not comfortable with cloud-based AI yet. That's what I would say. Silas Abhishek? Yeah, I would also say, so I remember we were talking to some of our clients where we discussed, like, it would be easy if we could just let them upload into S3 clients, S3 buckets or something like that. We looked it up and Amazon actually does have a service that sends Amazon people to the area where we want to collect data, put it into a hard drive, send it all the way across to Amazon, and they will upload that data for you. See, this is going to take a long time. Like Dr. Rob talked about the active learning part. It's active learning if you look at it from like a very zoomed out way. Similarly, the same thing for data collection. So if we could convince more, more people are convinced about using the cloud, it's safe. It's as safe as just doing on-prem then we could utilize things like what you mentioned regarding demo federated learning and something like that and ensure that everybody, the models are learning from everywhere, all kinds of different demographics. It's very less prone to bias and things like that. So yeah, cloud-connected AI would be the future. And again, I agree with what Dr. Abinavi just said. But outside that, I feel like it's just more or less like the hospital infrastructure being digitally savvy to the extent that like they collect anything and everything because we're living in a time where day in day out like people are building new and innovative models and for anyone at all to apply to like a medical situation you need to have the underlying infrastructure to say like like I just mentioned you shouldn't have a situation where you'd have to travel like miles from wherever you're you are just to, like collect the intent and bring it back 
There are scenarios where the data could get corrupted. I don't know, maybe there's floods or something. So probably the hard drive gets uh, corrupted or probably like during transportation as a result of how the car was vibrating, kind of like corrupts the hard drive. So, but then if the hospital had the underlying infrastructure where like for every patient record, it just gets uploaded to SD. There's no way you're going to lose that unless probably, I don't know, AWS shuts down or something, which probably <laughs> tell that happened is it can happen, but I like that's not exactly going to happen like when we take our answer. So that reduces so that reduces more or less like then our own time, especially for development and then the application of these new novel models in the medical space. That's what I like to see. Great. These are such good points. Thank you so much for sharing them. Yeah, it's about time for us to wrap up here, unfortunately. So want to thank all of you, Silas, Abhijit, and Dr. Rob for coming on and sharing your very valuable expertise. Thank you. We're Theta Tech and we're excited to be on the cutting edge of medical AI. It's, it's a burgeoning field. AI is taking over the world. It always has been. No one realized it. But we're here for the medical side of things. So we're very happy to be using Neptune for everything too. <laughs> awesome. So can you share anything more about how people can follow what you're doing or maybe connect with you? Yeah. If you just go to thetatech.ai as our website, you can. there's a form to reach out to us. That's T-H-E-T-A, theta, tech, T-E-C-H dot A-I. Again, there's just a form on that website. You can see some of the publications we have. And then if you need to contact us, thetatech.ai, we're available. Right on. Thanks very much. So we'll be back in two weeks. And next time we'll have with us Andreas Malekos and Ivan Chonho Chan. We'll be talking about leveraging MLOps technologies and principles at non-ML companies. So in the meantime, see you on socials and in the MLOps community Slack. Take care. Thanks. MLOps Live is brought to you by Neptune AI. Remember that you can join us live at the next event and ask your questions. And you can register at neptune.ai slash events. And then make sure to search for MLOps Live in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Click follow and don't miss any episodes. Thanks and see you next time.